Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's really interesting when we talk about saying the hard no, right? People say that to me all the time. You must feel so fulfilled that you've had this amazing effect on our community. And I do, but it doesn't diminish the loss of the Mm -hmm. other dream and the other culture that also doesn't value um, caregiving and -hmm. community building. Welcome to That's a Hard No, the podcast about saying no and setting boundaries to help you become the authentic and empowered you that this world needs. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. For those of you returning, thanks for sticking with us. We appreciate you and we're glad you're finding your content helpful. For those of you who are new, welcome and thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you here. Feel free to jump in with this episode, but be sure to go back and listen to our first episode to learn why we're here. A quick reminder, while Sarah is a licensed professional clinical counselor, this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy with a mental health professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, we welcome you on this journey, but also invite you to seek out professional help. Go to this episode's page on our website and click the link to find a therapist near you. With that said, let's get started. I'm so happy to introduce today's guest. We're talking with Sarah Rintamaki founder and executive director of Connecting for Kids, a nonprofit organization here in Northeast Ohio that provides education and support to families with concerns about their children. Regardless of title, Sarah is a community builder. You'll hear me say during the interview that she's woven herself into the fabric of the community where we both live. It's true. She's one of those people that brings an infectious joy to whatever she does. She's also super insightful. In fact, when we first invited her on the podcast, we suggested a different topic, but she had a much better idea, and I'm so glad she did. It's an important conversation that needs to happen, not only here, but in our individual lives and in our society as a whole. During our conversation, we talk about the societal expectations and pressures that we all face as parents or caretakers, how we're forced to either lean in or drop out, and how we need to start challenging the limited options afforded in the workplace in order to facilitate change. It's a thoughtful, engaging, and fun interview, just like every conversation I've ever had with her. Okay, so without further ado, the incomparable Sarah Rintamaki. Sarah Rintamaki, we have been looking so forward to this conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. So Sarah, for those who aren't already familiar with you, tell us a little about yourself. So I am a um, white suburban mom right outside of Cleveland. I've got two boys. Um, they are 17 and 15, um, which is just amazing to me. Um, I was talking to somebody how it just feels like, I feel like yesterday they were babies in my arms. Um, and now we're talking about college. I know the feeling. (laughs) Um, it's just what a ride. And, um, I, um, 
you know, I, I'm just very invested. I'm not from Cleveland originally. I, I grew mm. up all over the United States. And this is important because I've never really had a hometown. Um, and mm. so when my husband and I bought this house 19 years ago here in Westlake, Ohio, um, I just, I put down roots and it's, it was super important to me to be involved in the community and have a hometown. Um, and then what happened was I was working at the time and, you know, we had all these dreams of where we thought our life was going to go. Um, and you know, God had another plan. Um, and I stepped off the, the path that I was on and instead, um, started down a path where uh, my, calling in life became to help my, not only my children be able to overcome their struggles, but mm -hmm. then to launch a nonprofit called Connecting for Kids. And what we do is we um, educate and support families all throughout the greater Cleveland area. And it has grown in the last 10 years to serve more than 10,000 families um, and really become, you know, a large part of the community, which is wonderful because that was kind of what I was longing for all along. That's so interesting to me because um, you and I moved to the same community pretty much around the same time. My kids are a little older than yours. And and I've watched you become part of the fabric of the, our community. Like you're an integral part of what makes Westlake wonderful. And so it's so fascinating to me to hear this, I was longing to find community and you, and you've really like jumped right in and, and made a community within a community. Like it's, it's amazing to me. And to have watched connecting for kids grow from, you know, one library's programs to throughout the whole area, um, serving all these people has just been amazing. Um, so wow, that's, that's really great. And I can relate to that because I'm a transplant myself. So it's a, it's a, if you haven't been to Cleveland, it's a great place. <laughs> it's easy it to love. It's easy to love. It yeah. is easy to love. And, and, you know, that's when you, you know, when you originally asked me to be a part of this podcast, you know, you had a whole bunch of ideas about what you thought we should talk about. And, and I really think what was more interesting. So I love the fact you were like, mm, thank you for inviting me, but I don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. No, it's way more interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that it was not easy. I had to say a lot of no's mm -hmm. to build this community. Really yeah. tough, tough no's um, that were at the core of saying no to parts of, um, you know, the community here in Westlake that I, I could not participate in. I had to say mm -hmm. no to a lot of my old dreams for what I wanted to accomplish. You know, when I, you know, it's interesting when I'm helping my children pick their college careers, they have all of these dreams for the way they want their lives to live out. And I had to say no to those dreams that I had as a young woman um, to be able to embrace a different life. And, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, putting those no's up was very hard for me. Um, it was not something, you know, it felt at oftentimes like I had to, um, create, you know, animosity or, you know, reject people who genuinely wanted me to be involved in an aspect of community life here in order to mm -hmm. be able to say, but that community isn't what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build a different community. Right. And that's hard. Right. Yeah. There's that people feel rejected or like they're, what they're doing isn't validated more than rejected. Like what's wrong with what I'm doing. Um, right. And, and it's not to say, you know, like there's all kinds of talks about, you know, like, Oh, you got to say no to toxic people or, you know, but these were not toxic people. These no. are great people who are doing amazing things in our community. I just don't have time to give to everyone. Right. You right. know, and, and so to say no, when it is a healthy, when you can see how your help, is needed and could provide value. Um, and that there are people you genuinely like, um, and they're giving you all these compelling reasons to join them and to still say no is very hard. And I'm curious, did you learn that the hard way? Like, did you notice yourself saying yes to things, finding that it wasn't aligned with what you wanted? And then you were kind of like, wait a second, this isn't working. Now I have to really have that hard no. Walk us through that. Yeah. So I think it started, you know, I was very involved in our PTA structure. You know, I don't know if you guys heard that great podcast called, um, I think it was like Good White Parents or something um, that came out this summer. I haven't so heard it. 
beautiful podcast. And I'll, I'll find the one so you guys can put it in the notes. But it's a wonderful story about where a reporter from the New York Times talked about um, the PTA structure at two schools in New York City. And one, they're both urban schools, but one was predominantly white in the same you know, district. One was predominantly families of color. And she talked about how the white parents really felt as though it was part of their mission to be very involved in the school district, to be raising money, to be volunteering, to be going in the classroom. Like they felt like it was, this is what a good parent does. Um, and when they tried to integrate the two schools so that they would have a more diverse student population, the clash of those two culture cultures came together because the parents of color did not feel like it was their role to fundraise for the school, did not feel like it was their role to um, to be involved in giving the kids all of these extracurriculars. And I found it mm-hmm. so fast. It was called Nice White Parents. Um, and what I found was so fascinating was it just echoed my early years of being involved in my children's school. I mean, mm. all I did was raise money for the PTA. All I did was go to um, school parties and volunteer in the library. And I volunteered at centers so that I could help the teachers give one-on-one special attention to the children. Like I really felt like that was what a good parent does. And how did you feel doing those things? Did you feel like it was an obligation or kind of a stamp that you, you know, I have to do this. And then I checked that box. Like, did you feel like you were going through the motions or did you feel genuinely like, yeah, I love this? I loved it. I love the people. I'm not going to say there's not politics, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, there's politics, especially you put, you know, no offense, but you put a bunch of women together and there's going to be some politics, right? We just, all women groups, which this was predominantly an all female group, right? Um, You're going to have feelings and personalities and, but I've always enjoyed that, you know? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a wonderful way to get involved, to meet a lot of people, and to do so, and I loved being with the kids. I loved seeing my kids and getting to know the kids in their classrooms. I loved putting on the parties. I loved bringing in stuff to the school. Um, so, I, so, and that was the hard part. It's not that it was something that wasn't filling my bucket. Mm. Um, it filled my bucket. I loved the people I was involved in, but I didn't have enough time to do it all. You had another bucket. I had another bucket, right? And I had another community of parents and parents of children who were struggling. So both my boys were born with a rare genetic condition called um, Fragile X. And what that meant is that they had 55 chromosome errors on their X chromosome. And so if you were to look at their um, X chromosome underneath a microscope, there would be a part that would look like it was very thin. And so the portions of their brains when they were developing that took the information from that portion of the X chromosome didn't develop at birth. And so they had social emotional delays, speech delays, all kinds of sensory issues, lots of anxiety. Um, you know, in many ways it's similar to autism, but not autism. Um, and, um, so they needed a lot of intervention in their early years. And through that process, I found this wonderful community of families whose kids really needed a lot of intervention, either because they had some kind of a disability or a developmental delay, or maybe a mental illness, some kind of a struggle. And as I started to build up that community and take that, I just didn't have enough time Mm-hmm. for the PTAs, for the sports leagues, you know, because it's not just the PTA in West, like everything. I mean, whether it's the soccer club or the, I mean, like everything has yeah. a heavy parent involvement, <laughs> the True. art club, the music club. I mean, it is like everything you're involved music in has boosters. music yeah. boosters, <laughs> the athletic boosters, right? Right. And I have to say, I think it's important to recognize that participating in those things or not participating in those things does not define you as a mom. And I just know a lot of the women right now that I'm working with, the pandemic, although it's made things exponentially harder, it's also taken some pressure off of moms to do all of those things, do all of those volunteering things. They're kind of like, oh, there's like a weight off my shoulder that I don't have to show up in that way that I felt societally I needed to. And so it still has kind of given them evidence that I'm still a good mom, even if I'm not volunteering in the classroom. So I think that's also a good message to recognize and for moms to hear. 
Yeah, but I think it's the broader one. I, I, you know, what I love is that you're right. There's that self-affirming part. Like I know I'm a good mom and it does not matter whether or not I spent my time in the, con- the concession booth, you know, during the sports games. Right. Um, but our society, I think that's the broader topic we need to be talking about. Our mm-hmm. mom culture does not give other women that space. Right. Because we've defined, you know, I cannot tell you my, one of my children in high school is involved in three sports, two musics, um, and a science club. Mm. And every one of those activities, there's somebody from the school, a parent who calls me and says, your child is involved in this sport and you are obligated to come and do two concession stands. Your child is involved in music. So you are obligated as part of your parental contract, right? As part of the science, you know, thing, you need to come and volunteer three days. Like it is this, this is this written obligation. Um, and especially as your kids get older in some of our suburbs, like it is part of why would you not, you have to, this is how we make it work. That seems so unfair to me. So if some kid is a science genius and he wants to be part of whatever club, what if their parents are working full time and they can't do it? Like, does that mean certain kids are excluded because they have working parents? It just seems like the mindset just seems wrong. No. So it becomes this too. It's so interesting to me. It's really interesting about this culture and especially within, in our, in our city. So our city has some wide economic divergence. And so if you have a working class family, it's almost like the moms forgive that parent. But if you're not in a working class family, then it's expected that you show up. And there's a lot of social norming that goes on to expect you to show up um, and to take your turn because that's what's fair. Right. And, you know, what I want us as a society to start thinking about is why did we set up our structures this way? So there there are some moms that don't work or find intrinsic joy out of it. And and that is great. But it has become this part where it has become if you don't like it's almost like your kid signs up for something and wants to participate. And so now the parents are on the hook. Mm -hmm. Um. It's, and, and it's not just Westlake. I've got friends in Bay. Oh, I've sure. got friends in Solon. I've got friends in, in even, uh, you know, in Illinois, right? Outside of suburbs of, of Chicago, right? That have said that it has turned into this culture where, um, you know, we, we really expect, especially as the kids get older, for there to be a heavy parent involvement. Um, and I think it's time for us to start changing and looking at that. <laughs> I just what? think about the way we grew up and it, and like I was in band and marching band and all kinds of things. And my mom wasn't there. Like I, we're not letting our kids fly and learn how to socialize with each other. There's always mom or dad hovering up around. That just seems unhealthy to me. I'm sorry, Sarah, you were going to jump in with something. Well, I'm curious, Sarah, what would you like to see? I... I think you're right, Heather. Like for me, I feel like the thread is that we need to go back and ask ourselves every single thing that the parents are doing. Could you have a child do it instead? Empower let it go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like they say that they can't let the high school students be in the concession stand without an adult. Why? I can't. Right. Why? You know, I mean, I get it. You need some chaperoning. You know, and I feel like a chaperoning role is fine if you're going, you know, to another high school. Um, but I really think we need to look heavy. And I feel like some of it is, is that, like you said, it's almost like the parents were so heavily involved in elementary school going in and volunteering. And then they created these roles to still stay involved rather than taking more of a backseat. And I think we mm-hmm. need to go back and really look at it. That's why I like that Nice White Parents podcast, because I feel like it really sort of says, wait a second, why did we come up with this culture where we feel like we need to fundraise $20,000 right. for the high school every year? Do we really need that? Part of me also wonders if the reason kids sign up for these things and the reasons their parents want them to are two different things. The kids are doing it because it's just something they're passionate about or it's fun or they enjoy, you know, they like golf or they're a really good singer or whatever it is. 
And the parents are thinking college transcripts or college applications and what's going to look good and how, what school are they going to get into. And so by being involved, they're helping drive their kids towards that college success where the kids just like, I just want to go with my friends and play football. Like, so I'm wondering if that's part of it as well. You know, it might be, you know, um, I I do think there's very much a contingent in some of our uh, suburbs where it's all about the parents trying to drive a very high level of achievement. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would push back and say, I think a lot of the kids have drank that Kool-Aid. Oh yeah. Um, and so it's, it's very not, competitive. Yeah. And I, you know, and so like, you know, I talked to my sons about peer pressure and it's funny because the peer pressure I dealt with with in high school was, Hey, don't go drinking on Friday night. Right. Like it was the whole thing where everybody would get like a bunch of beer or we had these wine coolers, you know? Um, and the pressure they're facing is you need to sign up for another AP class. Like, you know, um, so, so I think that the culture for the children is intrinsic with the parents. Right. And so some parents are very much that way. Some are not like, you know, some kids are very much driving that as -hmm. well. Um, so once again, you know, as I keep telling my, my kids, what I think is so important when you're saying no is to be aware of what's really, you know, what is society telling you is important. Right. And I feel like there's a cart. What is a cultural thing? And can I reject that culture? So I think there's a cultural thing within white suburban schools, you know, or, or women Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. says being involved in the PTA means I'm a good mom. Oh yeah. And, um, and I think that we just need to be present and realize that's a cultural thing. Mm. And, and I can choose to participate or not, and it doesn't represent my worth. And then talk about it as a cultural thing, right? So, you know, because I remember one of the, I've been listening to all your podcasts. I think they're wonderful. But one of the things you you guys keep saying is, can you reject it? And can people still be okay with it, right? It turns out it's okay, Mm -hmm. right? Well, when you reject culture, it's not okay. When people are present with the fact that this is just a cultural choice, when they really think that they need, like, in order for their kids to have a good education, they need to raise $20,000 a year, right? Um, they're not going to tolerate rejection of that culture and be present with the fact that this was just mm-hmm. a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you're having these conversations at home with your kids. And I think that that's something I'm just so passionate about is working with family systems because whether we're conditioned a certain way, whether it's through that modeled behavior that then these kids have these high expectations because they've seen their parents or if a parent is, you know, unfortunately kind of doing some of that inner child work and placing that on their child without recognizing it, what is happening is there is just such an increase in anxiety in the world today, and especially young age kids at a very early age. And a lot of that does have to do with them trying to figure out, is this expected of me versus what do I really want? Mm -hmm. And going back to this idea of empowering children and helping them do things independently. I mean, when you think of executive functioning skills, like we want kids to develop these and no better place to do it than in the home, in the school setting. And so I just think as parents, it's our responsibility. It's our job to help to teach kids these things and and not just do it and then tell mm-hmm. them what to do, but to, mm-hmm. you know, encourage them. One of the prompts I always give families when around the dinner table is I was like, I want you to ask your kid, what did you fail at today? I want to normalize failure because failure is growth. Failure is bravery. Failure means that you put yourself out there and you learned from it. And so encouraging them to make mistakes and to fail and to, um, you know, to grow and learn that way without just having mom and dad, you know, doing everything for them. No, I, I couldn't agree. And especially as a parent of a teen, you know, you see sort of that outcome of that growth along the way, um, you know, in that, 
you know, one of my children just had a struggle where they made a really bad mistake. Um, you know, and, you know, and then the way we approached it was, yeah, all right. So you made a really bad mistake. So now what you need to do is to think about what led to that mistake. Mm. What were the things that came up to it so that at that moment in that situation, you made that decision, which wasn't really the right decision to make at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he came back with some reasons he thought. And, and our response was, so, you know, what your punishment is, is to go back and think some more mm-hmm. because it was deeper, sure. right? That in that moment you made that decision, right? And I feel like, but having that kind of an approach that of course, you know, and we kept telling him over and over because first he was beating himself up. I'm like, of course you made that mistake. You're 17 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what 17 year old brains do, right? Um, and I think it's that normalization. But as you said, Sarah, like it starts with, you know, I can remember my kids when they were, um, you know, in third grade, you know, we had them purposely hand in the wrong answers. Mm. And so they would know they would circle the answer, right? So that the teacher knew that they knew that this was not the right answer, mm-hmm. but they still had to hand it in because they were such little perfectionists that came yeah. out of, you know, my room <laughs> wanting to be like high achiever, straight A students. Right. Yeah. Um, but we had to work on making mistakes and tolerating that discomfort and knowing you were going to get a red, you know, like, and I feel like we've been working on that journey this whole time. Um, Cause it's not easy mm-hmm. to accept that we are imperfect humans. So going back to culture, I know as a mom, I, I, I took this approach when my kids were in elementary school all the way up in, in that I could see myself helicoptering and I'd get called into conferences with teachers and counselors and they would want me to helicopter more because my kids were square pegs. They didn't fit into the round hole. Both had ADHD like me, like they weren't going to fit the program necessarily. And the teacher was going to have to do some work. Right. And so there were times when, you know, they were struggling with certain things and the teachers would, would really, and the counselors would hound me into like trying to teach me how to parent. And I would kind of like step back and be like, hold up. Like, I'm not going to teach you how to teach and I'm not going to teach you how to do your job. Don't teach me how to parent. And it's okay if my child fails sometimes because that's how they learn. I'm okay with that. Failure is a really good teacher. And they were like horrified. Like they just could not understand where I was coming from. And so my kids, like they, they battled their way through school and, you know, high school just wasn't the right fit from like normal public high school wasn't the right fit for my daughter. Um, And we knew that like she, she struggled her way through, she got through it. And then she went to art school and just blossomed. And because it's a totally different kind of structure and way of teaching. Right. So, so I feel like there's, there's layers of pressure. There's our internal pressure. There's our peers, you know, the other moms and the PTA. And then there's like the school coming at you saying, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you involved more? And you can see when parents are doing those science fair projects, they, when they're doing those big reports and the kids aren't really doing them because they're succumbing to that pressure. So and I, I don't think, know if there's a question in all of that, but. <laughs> well, and I think one of the biggest things that I want parents in those moments to ask themselves is, am I trying to fix, rescue, or save? Because those are the three common things that happens when a child is struggling. We mm-hmm. want to fix it. We want to oh, rescue yeah. and we want to save. And so ask yourself, peel back the layers of like, why are we wanting to do that? And what would actually be more beneficial for our child? In the long run. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want to say like, and I think that it is, um, there's two different layers. I agree hundred percent with you guys. There is such a discomfort when you see your child struggling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it isn't about making your child never feel discomfort. It's about allowing them to have the confidence that they've encountered something that's a struggle and that they themselves have the tools to be able to fix that and to change. 
And, um, and that I think is such an important lesson for a parent, but you're right because it's not part of our culture to accept right. that that's the role of the parent, that that's what a good mom does is allows their child to fail. Right. And, and that's where I feel like we've got to say no to the culture as well. And to just remember that we're raising our kids, but we're also raising ourselves. And there's so much that we're learning as parents, just as we're navigating, our kids are navigating life. We're a new parent at every age and stage of our child. That's yeah. beautiful. You're right. I've never been a parent of a teen before, right? Yeah. So, so let's um, backtrack for a second. Because you have a very interesting uh, switch that happened in your life in that you started out in a very, like as you, as you alluded to earlier, a very high-powered business career. Um, so you had a different direction you were going in that you had planned on as a young woman. And then you said no, and you, and you went towards this other passion, this other bucket <laughs> we talked about. T tell us about that and, and that decision-making process and why you said no and what happened. Yeah. You know, it really came up when I was listening to some of your other podcasts about moms who um, through postpartum made career changes. You know, I think you had somebody who was a health coach who then chose to step away from that business or the women who were in LA as entertainers and then moved home. And, you know, it sort of brought back all of those um, emotions for me because, you know, my trajectory was that I was going to be a very successful businesswoman. You know, I mm -hmm. not only have an MBA from the University of Chicago, I spent a summer on Wall Street. I was an international strategic business consultant. I flew all over the world making, you know, well into six figures and bonuses that are more than I make in five years now. Um, traveling the world and talking to corporate leaders um, about how they should be guiding their, their companies. It was a wonderful job. I loved that job. Um, I love travel. I love meeting people. I love the intellectual challenge. Um, and I felt like I had so many, um, you know, people who gave me scholarships, whether it was in grad school to be this, you know, we got to diversify women in business, right? So many mentors along the way who said, Sarah, one day you're going to lead a fortune 500 company and I'm going to help you get there. Right. Um, and then I met um, Peter Lewis at Progressive Insurance. He was the prior CEO and he convinced me to come to Ohio. Um, and I came to Ohio and, and I loved my career there. And, um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg has a great book where she calls it Lean In, you know, and Sheryl mm -hmm. Sandberg's path and my path were very similar in that she was also a strategic business consultant. She worked for McKinsey and I worked for Boston Consulting Group. It was like the two competing companies. <laughs> um, and so, you know, reading her book really resonated with me because she leaned in and I stepped out. Um, and so when my boys were really struggling. Um, I took a leave of absence to try to figure out what was going on. And that was when I, you know, briefly taught at Tri-C. I knew I could never be a hundred percent stay at home mom. So I, I briefly just took a small job, um, teaching economics at night. Um, but it was a completely different shot. I mean, I was working 60 to 70 hours a week traveling all the time. There just was no way for, and then my husband was also working 60 to 70 hours a week traveling all the time. And, wow. you know, we had our whole plan figured out about how we were going to manage and balance both of our careers. He's a wonderful equal partner. But when we found out that our boys needed each about 40 hours of intervention a week, they're just, I just couldn't manage it. I just needed to take a break. Um, and so I stepped out for what I thought was a temporary period, um, to get them set up and settled. And, and then I was going to hop back in. Um, and even when I launched my nonprofit, it was never my intention 10 years later to still be a nonprofit leader. I was going to, I had a whole model where I was going to launch the nonprofit, um, and then hire somebody to run it. And I was going to go back to my real life. Um, Would you be willing to just let us get a tiny little taste of like, what was the narrative going on in your mind during that time to recognize like this internal conflict of like, what was happening in your mind of like, this was the plan that I had. And then noticing like, 
wait a second, this is not, this plan does not align with what's going on in my family. Well, I think, you know, in fact, that's why it was so triggering to me when I was listening to the other stories. It was because I was at St. John, you know, University Hospitals um, in a hospital bed. (laughs) And, um, you know, I had such a bad case of pneumonia Mm -hmm. and um, I had just run myself completely ragged. And I remember, you know, like they came in, they gave me treatments and, and the treatments weren't working. Right. And so it was, you know, day three of hospitalization and they're pulling in all these specialists because they're like, we don't understand why you're not bouncing back. And I remember my husband came in and he's like, we got to change. Something's got to change. Yeah. We can't do this anymore. You know? And, um, he had had a stroke three months before. Wow. Um, and, you know, caring for him, he had a stroke at 36, right? And, you know, and and then three months later, I'm in the hospital fighting for my life. And it was like, okay, God, all right. So, yeah. So, you know, like it was, you know, no, I didn't have this like small awakening. It was a brick to the head wow. that we had to change. And we sat down and, you know, I love my partner. Um, he is amazing. We really said one of us has to take a step back. Which one is it going to be? And it was not a, I'm the man, you're the woman. Mm-hmm. At the time I made, you know, twice his salary. So it made a lot more sense for him to step down than it did for me. Um, that it was my choice. I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and your was, body was physically yeah. telling you like, I can't sustain this. Like I have to stop. Yeah. But I also think like if he had stopped, I could have continued on. Like it was the fact that both of us could not continue the pace. So what happened for you then? Because I, I think that that's a beautiful thing that you and your husband have that. But again, if we're talking about culture, that's not always the way that it is. And so I'm wondering for you, what kind of, you know, happened within you that you said, okay, you know what? I am going to be the one to step back. You know, it was just, you know, I'm a very faithful person and I just prayed and I just knew that I, and it was also a lot of my own control issues. So, you know, I went into counseling, which was really wonderful to really kind of help address, you know, my self-identity and all of that. Um, And so a big part of it was, I really felt like I was the one that needed to do it, but then there was also a big part of control um, and that I wanted to be in there with the therapists and figuring out what the plans were. Um, And I wanted to have that really hands-on control of the situations with my children till we figured out what they really need. Cause nobody knew what they need is this rare condition. Right. So it was like, well, they kind of, kind of look like autism. So let's try some autism stuff. And, you know, like there was no hard and fast, you know, this is what you need to do to help your children. And that was really hard. Um, you know, and so we ended up pulling on specialists all throughout the country. You know, we're flying out to Washington, San Diego, you know, like we're really trying to do a lot of research on our own to figure out how to best help them. And um, I needed that control at that point in my life. I'm getting goosebumps and I'm actually tearing up, Sarah, because If you had not felt that calling to pursue that route, you would not have been able to reach as many people as you have with the nonprofit and being able to relate to so many people because Mm -hmm. of what you've gone through. Yeah. You know, and so, so it is, and you know, but what's really interesting when we talk about saying the hard no right? People say that to me all the time. You must feel so fulfilled that you've had this amazing effect on our community. And I do, but it doesn't diminish the loss of the Mm -hmm. other dream and the other culture that also doesn't value um, caregiving and -hmm. community building. You know, and so there is still a very, and, and I've, we've slowly moved away from those circles, but, you know, the big part of my social life and my circles was a community that values achievement, um, wealth, and accomplishments defined as corporate accomplishments, mm-hmm. you know, and none of those, right? 
you know, like, so, so I think there's a big part of our culture, as I said, that really values the nun who's poor, <laughs> who gives back, right? I'm Catholic, right? So it's, but, yeah. <laughs> but we do, we have this idolized sense, especially of women to be this unpaid selfless giver. Right. And I rejected that from a very early age. And yet I've ended up in this role of being a lower pay. I still get paid, but not where I would be. Right. Mm -hmm. Giver. Mm -hmm. And so reconciling those two cultures has been a lifelong challenge for me. And where I think it's given me more insight at 50 versus when I first made that change is that now I see it really is about the culture and the society and what they're saying is important. And so it wasn't, you know, I focused so much on the early parts about it being my own, what's my self-identity and what's defining it. And now I want us to start having the broader conversation about mm-hmm. the culture and what are, how are we talking about what the messages we're sending to our children about what's important? You know, it's interesting to me, I'm hearing about you navigating your way through two different worlds. And in both worlds, there are cultures that, and you, and you can't live up to their expectations, no matter what you do. And you have to say no to both in di- for different reasons and in different ways. And there's always that, am I doing the wrong thing? Am I letting people down? Are people disappointed in me? Have I not fulfilled my potential. There's like all these triggers and self-doubts and, and shame, you know, um, it's like, we can't win no matter what we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and especially so, you know, I've got teens, so I've got all kinds of, of, you know, teens that I'm helping to mentor as they pick their career choices. Right. And there's such a push for women in particular to go into mathematics and STEM fields and right. And we want you to be these engineers and these corporate executives and these politicians and have all this achievement. Right. I mean, think of the messaging that we send out in particular for, for the women that are going down those heavily male dominated wealth creating tracks. Right. Um, but I think we need to be really honest with them about what the culture is and what it's valuing mm-hmm. and, and for them to just be aware that they're going to get those messages along the way and what that means when they want to try to balance it with mm-hmm. caregiving and community building and other ideas for their lives. There's always going to be this competition between caregiving and achievement and doing what other people need versus what we want. Yeah. And and who set that up? Like, I feel like that's where we need to say no to it. You know, the, the Mm -hmm. corporate America was set up predominantly by, you know, white males who had somebody else who did all the caregiving for their parents and their children. Right. And, you know, we did this big push when I, you know, I graduated high school in the eighties. So I was the big push of the nineties to get women into corporate America and finance and STEM. And we didn't ask corporate America to change it all to accommodate us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now we're seeing, especially in this pandemic, the burden that has been placed on women where they're trying to keep up the level of achievement while still caregiving for their elderly parents that have been isolated right? While they're caregiving for their children. Um, And we're seeing record numbers of women drop out and say, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like that this is the time for us to say, you couldn't do it because we didn't have the conversation about what those cultures are. And we need to start saying no to that culture and rebuilding a different way of approaching work. And that right there is like the money is the conversation piece is that no shift is going to happen if we keep continuing having the same conversations. We have to shift the dialogue. We have to stop and we have to like sit and we have to communicate in our homes, in our households and start to create the narrative of what we want what our kids want, what our, not what society wants, because you're right. And Heather, you brought up a great point. Like, Sarah, you were dealing with two different worlds and it was this lose-lose and how debilitating if we, yes, we're talking about failure being good, but how suffocating and debilitating if we just feel like no matter how we show up, we're just losing 
And so to really be able to take a step back and say, wait a second, like that's their rules. I want to make my own rules. And what does that look like? Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I say no to their rules and their Mm. definition. Right. That's the power, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like that's where, you know, just listening to your stories have been such, there have been such thematic themes throughout them, you know, and you just think about the echoes of every woman who, you know, isn't on your show, but went through that same theme, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and the choices we had was lean in or jump out, right? And I say that now with this pandemic, it's our time to say no to the whole culture and say, mm-hmm. no. No, we need a new way where women can be caregivers, can be community builders and achievers. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that multifaceted approach. And I think, you know, systemically and generationally, it's important to also acknowledge and and be okay with saying no to certain people in our lives if it's not serving us and saying no to Although we were raised this way, this might be an expectation that we have, but we don't have to follow that. And it doesn't mean that we're being dis- disobedient or disrespectful. We we have one life. We have one life on earth to live. And so we have to live that. And Heather, I know your word is alignment mm-hmm. for 2021. Like we have to live in alignment of what we want not what other people want for us. And I hear what you're saying, but I feel like um, the broader question is the choices that are available. Because mm-hmm. what I what I feel like for women is their choices are I step out and there's not as much economic reward for me now. Right. right. And so there's very real economic repercussions that happen because of that. Well, there's always sacrifice one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And that, that I feel like has, that's what we have to say the hard no to. There's no mm-hmm. reason you can't have a functional career where you can support yourself um, and still be a caregiver and still be a community builder. Right. And right. that what I is what I feel like it's, and yet, you know, so we say, you know, to so many women, you know, step out, live your truth, take a scale back on your career. It's going to be okay. That's what you need. And I feel like now I would rather if we were to say, no, go back and challenge and say, I'm going to keep the career and I need to do less of that work because I've got this other work Um, and find that other way where it can still be economically sustainable. Um, So in my business, I work with clients a lot who who want a lot for not very much money. <laughs> and so I'm finding instead of saying, no, you can't have that, it's more of a yes and. Yes. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to scale things back? Or how are we going to restructure things? Or who on your team can take on this part while we do this other part? And so I'm wondering if that's the conversation. It's no, but also, okay, I need this to be different. How do we make that happen? Yeah. You know, there needs to be some building. I love Well, and that was a lot of what Cheryl Sandberg had to say in her lean in was, you know, instead of just jumping out, lean in Mm -hmm. and say, here's what could work for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having those conversations, um, you know, not thinking of it as black or white, yes mm-hmm. or no, you know, but having that, you know, conversation of what what would be my ideal world to be able to create this and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this conversation, it's like it's so philosophical, you know, in a way. And it's almost like I'm just reflecting back personally. And it's like, I don't know how my brain came to this conclusion that like, I need to work and be with the kids and do the laundry and do the dishes. Like it all falls on me. And then if I delegate, I'm like, 
I I'm filled with like shame. Like, well, I don't want to tell the other people that I have somebody coming to clean my house a couple times a week because then I feel like I'm failing or I'm not, I'm not managing my time well, or, you know, those societal expectations again. Right. And it's just, it's so sad because again, a lot of the people that I'm working with and, you know, anxiety is, is a specific, you know, symptoms, people always come in, which we know that there's a lot of layers to that, but it's always anxiety is just increasing and increasing and increasing and, and, and children and adults and these moms that come in and these women, they are just paralyzed by the societal expectations. And this conversation is just bringing to light so much of you know, that culture piece. And I think we just have to, we can't change what we don't acknowledge. And so just really being aware of Mm -hmm. stopping and thinking, where is this expectation coming from? Is it coming from Mm -hmm. myself? Is it coming from culture, society? Is it coming from my family history? Like just stopping and really asking yourself, why am I doing X, Y, and Z. I, I think that's exactly it. And really, and, and taking it away from the individual to the society. I feel like that's, that's the important part of the conversation and saying, Hey, you know what? We set up this framework where, um, you know, you're supposed to work from nine until five at a business downtown or a remote away from the home. Right. And you get a paycheck And, you know, and that, that is what work is. And then you come home and, you know, you need to serve a home cooked meal and you need to have a clean house that at any moment somebody could pop in and say like, oh, look how clean and organized this place is. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, And that's what, and by the way, you also need to show up for the concession stand on Friday Mm -hmm. night. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and I know that this, this is probably going to sound silly, but I just this week, like I had a client that canceled. And so it allowed my day to start like an hour later than what it normally does. And I had childcare. So in my brain, I'm like, it's beautiful outside. I would love to go for a walk, but wait a minute, I'm paying someone to watch my kids because I'm supposed to be working, says who, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm telling myself like, I'm supposed to be working. So I can't stop and go and take that walk. Like it's just, it's so interesting. The more that you bring your awareness to that, you have to decide what's best for you. (laughs) So I was listening to another podcast that I love called The Knowledge Project, and um, the host was talking with Seth Godin, who's a, a marketing guru. He was talking about sunk costs and how we get stuck on everything we've invested in something instead of how it's serving us. And so then we don't give up things like we've we. We keep using things that don't serve us anymore because we've spent so much time or money to make those things. And and you have to kind of evaluate, is this serving me anymore? Maybe I did go to college for this high-powered career and, and I got all these scholarships and all these people invested their time and their money in me and, oh my God, I'm going to let these people down. But is it serving you? And when do you have to acknowledge that, you know, this, it served me to this point, it got me to here, I got what I need out of it, it's time to let that go and move on. Oh, absolutely. That was a big part of what um, I had to go through in the process, you know, and the way I was able to frame it for myself was that all of that mentoring allowed me to create the business aspect of growing this nonprofit to Mm -hmm. be as large as it is. You know, mm-hmm. that the fact that I understand marketing and organizational structure and human resources and budgeting and finance and all of those right. things. It has served you well. That. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's about, you're right, but it's that sunk cost. It's that whole, this was the plan. When can you let that plan go mm-hmm. and kiss it goodbye? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I not feel a, bad about it. Mm-hmm. And, and to be at peace with the fact that the path took a different way. And I love to use this metaphor with clients of a vehicle and that our whole life is a journey and 
we put miles on by the different things that we've experienced through the years. But when we we will crash if we continue to try and drive forward while looking in the rearview mirror. And if we're constantly just focusing on the rear rearview mirror and thinking, you know, what if or beating ourselves up for things, we're not able to go forward. And so all all of the miles that are on those cars, all of the things, it's still part of our our journey. It, it still happened. We're just choosing to go a different route. And there's going to be, and I know we've talked about this a lot, there's going to be pivots and there's going to be potholes and there's going to be detours and, mm-hmm. you know, construction. But we just were, we are in that car and we're not giving up and we're keep, we're just going to keep going. And what a beautiful journey, you know, and I feel like I tell that now to all these teens I'm mentoring, you know, where I say, you know, that is the beauty of it. The choice you make at 18 does not have to be your lifelong Mm -hmm. commitment, right? That, that we are people who live and grow as we age, right? And, and do that cumulative experience. Like, you know, when you had that image of the car, like I'm picturing, I got this VW bug right now with big flowers <laughs> on the outside of it, right? Like the, you know, where I am at 50, I never could have seen myself at 18, 25, 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love my life. I love what I'm doing. I love everything about it. Um, and, um, and I finally feel like I have a true and authentic voice. Um, and that's where I would like my voice, though, to be helping these younger women that are facing these choices, mm-hmm. just to be aware that it's more than just your own personal self-esteem, that you're fighting these societies that, that are going to be sending you these messages of your own worth. And it isn't just about your own journey, but you need to recognize that this is our collective journey. Right. And redefining. We're doing this um, to each other. Yes. We're doing this to each other in the PTAs. We're doing this to yeah. each other in um, even in the corporate world. You know, like I always say, like, it's amazing how, um, you know, I get dismissed so easily when I'm at a corporate networking thing. You can just see it in their eyes when I say that I'm a leader of a nonprofit. Like, it just does not carry the weight that it used to carry. I just see it. Right. Um, And it doesn't bother me anymore because, you know, I feel like I'm 50. I own it. Like, I know who I am and I know. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so it doesn't matter to me what you think of me. Right. Um. And so I feel like that's, but to be aware that you're going to be dismissed if you choose a different path is part, I think, of then you not caring about the dismiss, right? So so when you reject that corporate culture, to know that the people who stayed in that corporate culture are going to dismiss you makes it less about you and more about them, mm-hmm. Right. Um, And I feel like if we can start educating and talking to all, especially our young women, you know, and saying this is not going to be an easy journey. Mm -hmm. Um, So be aware of the different pressures you're facing and then hold true to your own vision, your own vehicle. Where, where where's your car going? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's, oh, I'm I'm sorry. sorry. Go on, Heather. I was going to say to circle back what you were saying about your, your kids, um, teaching them to be okay with that period of time they're uncomfortable, just know you're going to be uncomfortable um, and make sure that's part of your decision-making process that you're, you can, you can handle it and you're, you're willing to stick with your, your plan. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Sarah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think another thing that's really helpful as far as that journey language is that there is no true finish line. And I think when we can acknowledge that and continue to reiterate that, it takes that pressure off because at least from my experience, friends I've talked to, clients I've worked with, like they think, okay, it's this like destination like fallacy that they have that like, okay, things will be better when, when, and, and I just think if we can acknowledge like it is a stinking journey and like 
pack the good snacks and like get the good music, like enjoy it. I think it adds just so much more of less pressure, more flexibility and perspective taking. And, and it's also that saying, and I don't know who said it, but like, instead of the whole comparison, you don't want to, the grass isn't greener on the other side, like water the grass you're in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. especially, you know, for this um, kids trying to go to college, like I can't tell you how many teens I say, you think the end goal is getting that acceptance letter into college. Mm-hmm. But the minute you're there, you're going to start thinking about either what job am I getting out of college or what grad school am I going to? Mm-hmm. And then let's say you go to the grad school. Once you're at the grad school, it's what job did I get out of grad school? And then once you're out of the grad school and into the job, you're like, okay, and what, what promotion am I getting? Mm-hmm. Right. You and so, make the six figures. Then you're like, can I make more? Like there's always and that's something where new. the anxiety it's, it's focusing on the past, dwelling in the past, per, trying to predict the future. And we need to be grounded in the present and turn up the volume and eat that good food and enjoy that journey that you're in now, the rest will figure itself out. Because then if we try and figure it out, try and goal setting is so important. I'm not here to say like, don't strive for certain things. But like, if we're already having tunnel vision on what we think that final destination is, that's when the perspective of we we feel like we're doing something wrong because we decided to go a different way. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, that should be like a t-shirt every 15 year old child should get, <laughs> right? Like, let's just come up with t-shirts. I love it. And be like, Bring this on is the merch, right? This is a hard no, right? Yeah, this is yeah. a hard no to rejecting that there is only one path, mm-hmm. right? Let's have, and just be there present in the moment and say, you know, I'm going to set my goals, but then I'm going to enjoy the fact that that path may not turn out where I want it to be. And that that actually could be beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love using the alphabet. I, kids that I work with, and I do this with adults, there's 26 letters in the alphabet. If plan A doesn't work, there's B. If B doesn't work, there's C. If C doesn't work, <laughs> we've got a whole lot of other letters that we can go with. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So Sarah, we always ask our guests for a golden nugget of advice, basically wrap up the big takeaway for our listeners. So what would your golden nugget of advice be? My advice would be that if you are questioning your own worth, if you're facing self-doubt about your abilities, that before you look inward, that you ask yourself if it's society's expectations. And if it's society expecting something that is unrealistic, then you need to say a hard no to that. And that deserves to be on a (laughs) t-shirt. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, merch coming soon. (laughs) I feel like you just summed up like all of like my issues in one little statement because now I'm like, okay, I'm. You know what? I'm gonna like give myself grace. I'm not gonna beat myself up. I'm gonna like see what what are these expectations, and I think we all need to just stop. And if nothing else, we just bring our awareness to that. Yeah. No, I, that's why I wanted to be on your podcast. I did. I feel like that that is the piece that we're not talking enough of. It's not just our individual journeys. We have a collective journey here together. And the more we're aware of that collective journey and start saying no to it, we'll all be better off. Well, that is a mic drop moment if I ever heard one. Um, thank you so much, Sarah Rintamaki. This has been a, a joy, joyful conversation. We both looked forward to it so much. And, you know, I should also mention before we say, you know, you're the reason Sarah Saunders and I know each other. It was your nonprofit mm-hmm. uh, for whom I put up my services and then Sarah bid on me. So, so you brought let, us let me, together. The if I can rephrame that. Are. 
It's because you, Heather, generously donated your services. Oh, thank you. So so thank you, Heather, for that. And then you, Sarah, you generously donated the funds for those services to help fund our program. So it was both out of the generosity of both of you that made that connection. So thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great organization if you... Um, you know, if you're a mom or dad out there with kids, um, you know, connecting for kids helps parents of all kids, not just, you know, specific kinds of needs. And they have a, a resources database and uh, other programs. So look them up uh, if you're in the greater Cleveland area. And um, Sarah, this has just been wonderful. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. And you're welcome back anytime, anytime. Wonderful. Wonderful. It was a wonderful Thank time. Thank you. Special thanks to Rihanna Carusis of Collective Reach and the Social Distance Happy Hour podcast, who inspired and challenged us to start this podcast and helped us produce our first episode. Thanks also to our families and friends for all their encouragement and support, and to you, our listeners, for joining us on this adventure. That's a Hard No is a joint production of Clever Girl Marketing and Purposeful Growth and Wellness. Logo design by Angela Giacco of A Pink Sunset. You can find her at apinksunset.com. Music by G.G. Riggs. Until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, saying no isn't just okay. Saying no is the key to living an authentic life fulfilling life. So do it. Find your no, then say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave.